Welcome to the podcast of Christ Church in Town in Jacksonville, Florida. We are seeking the renewal of all things in Jesus Christ. Towards that end, we are committed to cultivating personal transformation in Christ, an uncommon fellowship of racially and economically diverse individuals, and the flourishing of our neighbors. To join our local body in membership or financial support, visit ChristChurchInTown.org. This morning, we are continuing and getting very close uh, to concluding a sermon series that we've been in through the fall on the book of Galatians, Paul's letter uh, to the churches of Galatia. Uh, in two weeks, uh, we'll finish this, uh, this series up and we'll be starting our Advent uh, series as we prepare uh, for the Christmas season. But I have loved our time in Galatians. Uh, this uh, is perhaps not a surprise Uh, Presbyterians, which this church is one of, uh, love Galatians. I guarantee you, if you look up any PCA church, that's our denomination, if you look up any website and look at their sermon archives for the last five years, they've probably preached Galatians at least once. Uh, Ever since the time of the Reformation, Galatians and Romans, two of Paul's letters, have really in all the Protestant churches had a kind of a pride of place. We've loved these books because of how much uh, they contain of the incredible doctrine of God's grace in Jesus, right? It's from these books where Paul gives us perhaps our clearest descriptions of uh, the great concepts of justification by faith and the atonement and God's forgiveness, right? These are wonderful passages, wonderful books for people who love the doctrines of God's grace and who've been fi- who find themselves nourished by them churches that are rooted in them. But uh, for often some of the same reasons, we often don't know what to make of Galatians chapters 5 and 6. Because Paul seems to move on from his theological teaching on these doctrines of grace and move on to some very practical matters. Moves on to some very ordinary things about how we love one another, how we care for one another, what kind of uh, life our churches ought to have. Paul, who spent so much of the book of Galatians telling us that we cannot be saved by the keeping of the law, that Christ keeps the law for us, here in Galatians chapter 6, in light of his command, says, do this and so keep the law of Christ. So he lays, lays down a new trajectory of a new kind of law for his people. Because what Paul wanted so desperately for his friends in Galatia to know, and I think what Paul would want us to know, is that it isn't enough just to believe the right things about God's grace, right? Simply having the right doctrines of grace is not enough if the culture of your church isn't shaped by grace, if the character of your lives doesn't then convey that grace towards one another and towards your neighbors, then you as a a body and your neighbors will look and say, well, I'm not sure you really believe what you say you believe, Because though you talk a lot about grace, your life is marked by a kind of a coldness, a kind of a rigidity, a kind of selfishness and isolation. So the beliefs that we treasure that are rooted in the gospel of God's grace have to come out in a culture, a church culture of grace. And that's what Paul will spend uh, the rest of chapter 6 talking about. And so, 
haven't even started yet, so let's get the reading done. Uh, if, uh, as we look to Galatians chapter 6, if you're willing and able, would you please stand as we read God's word together? Our reading today is Galatians 6, 1 through 10. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked, for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true and is given to us in love. Thanks, Erica. You can be seated. Well, there was a church uh, that made the news over the past couple of years. Um, we don't often make it, I don't often make it our business uh, to paint other churches in a disparaging light, um, but this is one church that did uh, some things that are a little, little strange. Uh, it's a Florida church, and like Florida man, Florida church rarely makes the news for doing good things. Um, but this, this church in Florida calls itself Next Level Church, uh, believing it to be their calling to take the church to the next level. And uh, Easter Sunday two years ago, they decided to take the Easter egg hunt to the next level uh, by not merely hiding eggs in a park for children to find, but by bringing helicopters and dropping Easter eggs onto the park, on, I guess to the, on top of the children, um, <laughs> dropping Easter eggs. So they had a helicopter egg drop. And this church was then confused and dismayed when they found out that some enterprising neighbors skipped the Sunday service entirely and just followed the helicopters to the egg drop, got their eggs, and went home. So the next year, uh, they took the egg drop to the next level. They said, uh, now what we need you to do is you have to come to the church service, and the, the egg drop location is going to be a secret. And it's not till we get to the end of the church service, we'll tell you where the eggs are going to be dropped, and we'll give your child a wristband, then you can go to the Easter egg hunt. In an interview with the local paper, some of the neighbors uh, said that they were excited about seeing Easter eggs dropped from a helicopter. But they were dismayed when they found out that they had to sit through an hour-long church service where they had to be, in their words, proselytized. Uh, in order to get these eggs. Some neighbors even said that what they did, perhaps smartly, they showed up when they found out they weren't going to find out till the end of the service where the eggs were. They went, they went and got some lunch, came back in the back in time to find out where it was, and they said that they were unsure if they would be back next year. Well, uh, I say this not to single out this church, uh, of course. Uh, similar stories uh, abound about the, the work the church does to try to get the attention of our neighbors attuned to the gospel. Philosopher James Davidson Hunter says this, uh, that when each of us, when Christians in the West are faced with what we can all feel is the declining Christian influence in our culture, 
we feel that and we begin to panic. And so what most of us do, in his words, is we try to make God safe for American culture. We try to, uh, when we see that our culture is departing uh, from the Christian message, we say, well, we'll make the Christian message more palatable to our culture. And while uh, Easter eggs dropped from helicopters may be a uniquely American expression uh, of the resurrection, uh, churches wrestling with this is anything but new. Churches wrestling with how do we live in light of the gospel in the midst of a culture that invites us to something that's contrary to the gospel? Do we move our lives and move our, our, our church community's life so that it fits in better with the world around us? Or do we trust the gospel uh, to shape us in such a way that the witness of our lives becomes an attractive witness to the gospel? And that's what Paul wants for his Galatian friends. He recognizes that they lived in a world that put tremendous pressure on them to live their lives by a different set of values than is articulated by the gospel. And what he's trying to urge them into is to say, no, no, as you live out these relationships shaped by God's grace, you will be a counterculture in your world. You will live differently, you'll make different decisions, you'll treat one another differently. In that very act, that, that family of people living together by faith, by the grace of God, will be an evangelistic witness to the surrounding world, that there's something true to it. We're told uh, by those who are experts in this, and it's come increasingly to light through scholarship uh, on the ancient world, is that ancient Roman society was marked above all else by what one commentator calls an endless competition for honor. That what uh, the ways that the, Ro the the ways that Roman society was shaped is that everybody was always trying to outdo one another to prove that they were more worthy of respect, love, honor, and reputation than those around them. It might be through uh, through their learning. It might be through the success of their careers. It might be through their physical beauty or athletic prowess, their accomplishments uh, in battle. But there was this constant comparing and competing against one another to see who was worthy of honor and who wasn't. Cicero, the great uh, Roman philosopher, says this. He says, By nature we yearn and hunger for honor. And once we have glimpsed, as it were, some part of its radiance, there is nothing we are not prepared to bear and to suffer in order to secure it. Sounds eerily like our own world. Right, where we do, each in our own ways, try to prove ourselves, try to present a certain image of ourselves that's worthy of love, worthy of respect. And into this world, Paul drops the bomb of the gospel. That in Christ, there is no more Jew or Gentile, male or female, slave or free. There is no more hierarchy of worth or honor. There is only sinners discovering that they belong, that they're valued because of Jesus, because of His grace. And that has to shape you differently. And what he's distressed by, both here in Galatia and elsewhere in his writings, is churches where, in their own life, they're competing with one another for honor. Who's the, who's the best teacher? Who's the, uh, who performs the most amazing feats of faith? Who's the wealthiest? Who's the freest? 
And so into that, he brings this message that they are to be, by the gospel, a counterculture for the common good of the people around them. And so we're going to look at a few things that Paul uh, lays out here for how they ought to be a counterculture. Uh, First, he shows us that the church is to be a forgiving people in a world without mercy. A forgiving people in a world without mercy. He starts in verse 1, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. If anyone is caught in any kind of sin, you who are spiritual should restore them with a spirit of gentleness. What happens uh, in a community when some transgression is discovered? Right, you might even ask it about yourself. What would happen to me in my network of relationships, in my church community, if I was exposed in some moment of sin, some obvious moment of transgression? Right, you almost get anxious just thinking about it. Right, what would happen to me if all of a sudden the people in my life knew about some pattern that I kept hidden, some addiction that I nurtured in secret? What would happen to me if that darkest corner of my life was laid bare? In this Roman society where people were constantly competing against one another for honor, right, the sin or slip-up of any one member became an opportunity to judge that person and to get up, to climb the ladder at their expense, right? To expose them to shame, to expose them to judgment, to expose them to mockery, and in so doing, somehow elevate yourself. And friends, this sounds uh, so eerily like the world that we live in. We may live in the most merciless time uh, in the cultural history of the world, Uh, Public exposure and shaming has replaced baseball as our national pastime, right? We love, we say we hate, but deep down there's a part of our, our, our common life that is fed by public scandal and sin. Something comes out about what someone has said or done perhaps years in the past. And all of a sudden, for at least 24 hours, social media is taken over with what may not include literal stones, but is a stoning of the person whose transgression has been revealed and has been exposed. It's become such that now one thing that uh, the best athletes in the world have to do, uh, now having learned this through through hard uh, exposure, is that most entrants to the NFL draft each year now uh, have someone that they pay to go in and scrub their social media history. Because we've had uh, numerous occasions, I think it was two years ago, that uh, something that someone tweeted as a 15-year-old caused them to slide down the draft and cost them millions of dollars. Uh, One one player uh, boasting of drug use from three or four years before cost himself millions of dollars because someone discovered the long history that our social media uh, interaction leaves behind. In a world like this, no wonder we are terrified of being exposed, of what we know. Every one of us lives with an awareness that we're sinners. 
right? The question isn't, is there sin in us that could be exposed? The only question is, will it be exposed, right? Will we be successful at hiding the dark corners of our lives, or will those things be laid bare? And what Paul says is that in a world where, when, when someone's shortcomings come to light, in a world where everybody piles on with shame and guilt, mockery and judgment, in the church it should not be that way. If anyone is caught in any transgression, notice the breadth of what he says there. Not just when otherwise respectable people are found in sin, not just when somebody who does it just this once is caught in sin, but if anyone is caught in any kind of sin, right? Not just the kinds of sin that you do, not just the kinds of sin that you're comfortable with, not just the kinds of sin that you tolerate, but if anyone is caught in any sin, those who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. The word for restore here is the same Greek word that would be used for the mending of a ripped fishing net. Uh, the long and patient and tiresome work of re-knitting, of mending a torn net. It's the same word that would be used for rebuilding a wall that is tumbled down. The hard, patient work of relaying a wall. The church should be the kind of place where when the worst about us comes to light, that, is, that we are restored, that we are knit back together again with gentleness and love. I w <laughs> this, is, this takes me back a ways, but when I was uh, interviewing for this job, uh, so this was uh, seven or eight years ago now, I uh, was interviewing with the church that became the mother church of this church plant, and, uh, you know, if, if you've ever interviewed for a job, you know what happens. They ask you question after question after question. And then at the end, they say, do you have any questions for us? And usually, wanting the job so badly, uh, you don't say anything, <laughs> right? You say, oh, no, you know, are you really this wonderful? Or, um, you know, you, you, you mask your deep questions. But somebody uh, years before had given me the, the, what I think is the most important question not just if you're a pastor interviewing for a church, but if you're a member considering a church. And it's this question, what happens here if I sin? If I, as a pastor, am revealed to be a sinner, what will happen to me? Do I get to be a sinner pastor here, or do I have to find another job? Uh, if it becomes clear uh, that my marriage is hurting in some way, if it becomes clear that my children are in need of attention and care in some kind of special way, if our family isn't the model Christian family, what happens to me? And friends, the answer, obviously I took the job. I was happy with, with, with what they said. Um, but friends, if, if you're in a church where it's not safe for the, sinner to be a, uh, for the pastor to be a sinner, it's not safe for you either. Right, we, the, the culture of a church ha, shaped by the gospel has to say, you know what? We are not going to be surprised by sin. Our theology actually tells us um, that every one of us is a sinner. When you join this church, you take vows that says, I confess that I am a sinner in the sight of God, justly deserving of his judgment except for in the sovereign mercy of Jesus. So what will happen to you here if you sin? 
what will happen to you here? First, we will weep with you and we'll pray for you. We'll remind you that your badness does not damn you to hell any more than your righteousness could ever save you to heaven. We'll tell you that we're sinners too, your pastors, your elders, your deacons, your deaconesses. We'll protect your dignity and your honor and cover your shame. We'll offer you the broken body and shed blood of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. We will believe that you can change even if you can't manage to believe it. Right? Sometimes when we're exposed in sin, the hardest thing for us is to even believe that it could be any different. To even believe that, that our lives might be marked not by the tragedy of sin, but by the glory and joy of redemption. And we'll believe that for you when it's hard. I love this phrase, restore. Like the mending of a torn net, the rebuilding of a broken wall. Because it requires us to admit that something's broken or ripped, doesn't it? Right? We do no one any favors if we pretend that something that is sinful isn't sinful. If we pretend that everything in our lives is always fine all the time. If we pretend that our addictions aren't as deep as they really are, that our habits are less ingrained than we know them to be. But when we admit brokenness, we open ourselves to the beauties of Jesus' restoring work. So Paul says we should be a forgiving people in a world without mercy because Jesus is the kind of one who moves towards us in restoration with all gentleness. When we sin, we can do that for one another. Secondly, he calls us to be a humble people in an arrogant world. A humble people in an arrogant world. There's a part of this that seems kind of arrogant, isn't there? When Paul says, you who are spiritual should restore the one who sins. Right? We can think that in Paul's mind, there's these two classes of people. There's the spiritual ones, and then there's the sinful ones. And when one of, the, when one of those sinful ones sins, you over here in the spiritual uh, club should come over and help them out. But that is not what Paul means. Uh, we saw last week when Paul talks about when, when Paul was writing to us about the fruit of the Spirit, right? That, that in Paul's mind, it's not that there's fleshly ones and spiritual ones, but that the Spirit here, the, the word spiritual is marked by those who've received the Spirit, those on whom the Holy Spirit has been poured out, which simply means Christians, right? If you're a Christian, if you're one who's admitted that you're a sinner and has trusted in Jesus and has received the Spirit, then you are one of these spiritual ones that ought to look out for one another and care for one another and restore one another. But he goes on, verse 3, if anyone thinks he is something, and I'm sorry, finishing verse 1, keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Then verse 3, for if anyone thinks he is something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. Right, what Paul's saying is the reason that the church can be a safe place to be exposed in the midst of sin is because everyone in the church recognizes their own weakness, their own frailty, their own proclivity towards sin. Right, that when your brother or your sister uh, is, is caught in sin, we recognize that we are the last ones who are in a position to judge. 
Because we too, our lives are marked by sin and frailty and weakness. Paul seems to even have in mind here that you ought to be careful when you're working with this person, when you're ministering the restoring grace of Jesus, to make sure you don't sin in the midst of doing that. That you don't either stumble into the same situation they're in or that you don't start thinking you're so wonderful and being puffed up in the midst of trying to help them. But that we should be a humble people in the midst of an arrogant world. Remember, in his culture, this would have been radically countercultural. In a world where they love to boast about their accomplishments. You remember when we were preaching through 1 Corinthians, um, better part of a year ago, I'm sure you remember. Um, we learned that it wasn't uncommon in that world for people to build monuments to themselves in the public square. If they attained enough wealth, they would make something and, and dedicate it, a statue perhaps, or a column of a temple and dedicate it to themselves. But Paul says, don't boast. Don't think you're something when you're really nothing. And don't deceive yourself about your own goodness or your own might or your own strength. The Gospels are full of stories that point us to this. The one that we've told before, I've preached on before, is the story of the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8. Right, you may remember that story of a woman caught in adultery and the, the religious leaders drag her into the public square and they're ready to stone her until Jesus says to them, let the one among you who's without sin be the first to cast a stone. And they all drop their stones and walk away. Right, Jesus shows us that there is a one-to-one -one connection between your, your view and acknowledgement of your own sin and the level of judgment and danger that you pose to other weak and sinful people. That when we are unaware of our own weakness, when we're blind to our own frailty, when we're blind to our own wickedness, we are harsh and judgmental uh, with the people around us in our churches and in our families when they reveal themselves uh, to be broken. So a humble people in a world of arrogance. Thirdly, he calls us to be a burden-bearing people in a world of self-reliance. A burden-bearing people. Look at verse 2. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. We live in a culture that has elevated self-reliance to the highest of values. Right? That, that, that you'll know that you've arrived when you don't need anyone else to look after you, to care for you, to support you. When you are able, uh, fully and finally, to be independent of the needs of community and family, uh, that's how we define independence and freedom and strength. And yet, Paul says in the midst of this difficult world that you need one another to bear your burdens. Every one of us in this life carries burdens. Every one of us uh, walked into church today. No matter how good things looked on the outside or how upright we walked, every one of us carries burdens on our back. Some of us come in worried about our financial situation, how we're going to make ends meet. Others of us come in burdened about our marriage, the state of our relationships. Some of us come in burdened by our relational world. Maybe it's some families uh, sometimes just getting to, you know, if you didn't start your day burdened when you tried to get children to church on Sunday, you probably got here burdened uh, by the end. Each one of us carries burdens 
in this life. We carry our own inner burdens, our own despairs and doubts and anxieties. And Paul says you need not carry those burdens alone. You don't have to come into church and act like you live this unburdened life. You can saddle up next to one another. Admit your burdens and let someone else help you to carry them for a while. There's a young uh, Presbyterian minister in our denomination, Ronnie Garcia. Uh, some of the staff got to hear Ronnie's story uh, at this beautiful orthodoxy conference that we went to a few weeks ago. But Ronnie uh, is a brilliant, really sharp young guy, incredibly gifted. Uh, and uh, he went, he moved, he and his young family, to Puerto Rico. Uh, he is a Latino himself. He stresses that uh, to a room of mostly white ministers that he's not Puerto Rican, uh, he is Mexican, and they're different, and this is a cross-cultural mission for him as well. Um, and he goes to try to plant the first Spanish-speaking Presbyterian, uh, Spanish-speaking presbytery in our denomination. And he starts by trying to plant one church, Trinity Church, Puerto Rico. Uh, and shortly after they got there, they got there in early 2017. And as many of you know, in September of 2017, Hurricane Maria. Uh, hit Puerto Rico, and everything about their lives and their church changed completely. As their island was pounded by a Category 5 storm, 185 mile per hour winds, on an island where most people have tin or wooden roofs. He said if, you're, if you had a tin or a wooden roof, the chances are you lost your entire home. Three families from their, uh, from their church went and lived with them uh, to ride out the storm so that they could do it together. And all three families uh, lost everything they owned and ended up moving in with the Garcias. He told us that the entire island lost power, water, telephone, and internet. Uh, some places uh, still do not have it. He says his family on the mainland knew more about what was going on in Puerto Rico than he did living on the island uh, because of the utter breakdown of the infrastructure. Ronnie told us that he, not unlike most Presbyterian ministers, was a rather heady person. He was filled with, right after seminary, lots of beautiful ideas and theology about the gospel. They had built a church in a few short months in Puerto Rico that was filled with like-minded like kinds of people, people who love theology and love doctrine and love to get around and discuss it and debate it. But he says what God did in their life through that storm was to teach them that it's not enough to simply believe true ideas about the gospel, but that we, the church becomes a truly gospel-centered, gospel-bearing church when we begin to bear one another's burdens, when we begin to bear the burdens of our neighbors, we become a true church. And so Ronnie, together uh, with his church and with other churches uh, around, became a shelter uh, in their church building. They took turns sheltering those who had lost everything in the storm, providing them places to live. They reached out to villages uh, where they, uh, the medical uh, in disaster response, people weren't able to be. They formed a network of churches that the, the Red Cross was actually later able to come in and use their logistical network uh, to help get aid to some of the hardest to reach places. Bear one another's burdens. Bear one another's burdens. Because in so doing, you keep the law of Christ. You fulfill the law of Christ. 
What's Paul talking about there, fulfilling the law of Christ? He's simply saying that when you bear one another's burdens, you look like Jesus. When you bear one another's burdens, you look like the one who came to bear your burdens. The one who in and of himself existed from eternity at the Father's right hand, but who left that unburdened, glorified existence to enter into our lives and to bear one another's burdens. The story of Trinity Church in Puerto Rico is dramatic, right? It's uh, a church, uh, church life, church planting in general is hard enough let alone doing it in the wake of a terrible storm. But it doesn't take a dramatic situation like that for the church to bear one another's burdens. It happens in this church every day of every week uh, that we live our life together. It's hidden uh, to many of you, right? We all have our own lives. We're all in our different groups and serving in our different ministries. But every week, uh, as growth groups gather around in people's homes or around tables in a restaurant and share your life, share your sin, share your struggles, and, and another person comes and puts their arm around you and cares for you, that is fulfilling the law of Christ, bearing one another's burdens. It's in the meals prepared for people after hospital stays or after giving birth to children. It's in the tireless work of the deacons and the deaconesses as they come alongside those who are struggling financially or materially. It's in the shepherding work of pastors and elders and group leaders as they weep with those who weep, mourn the brokenness of our lives or of our marriages. It happens as we serve our neighbors here, as we walk into Pinedale Elementary School to serve as tutors, as we uh, pull up across uh, from incarcerated youth through juvenile justice ministries. We walk onto the streets of, or the uh, hallways of Lee High School through Young Life. This is a, a body of people showing the beauty of Jesus in bearing one another's burdens and in bearing the burdens of our world. Paul says, do good to everyone and especially to those who are in the household of faith. This life of bearing burdens and doing good and then finally, Paul calls the church to be a generous people in a world of greed. A generous people in a world of greed. Verse 6, let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. You can highlight that if you're so led. <laughs> Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. And the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Before we get into these, there's so much that needs to get cleared away from verses like these before we even start to talk about them. Um, but there is a certain type of foolishness uh, that goes on in churches that some of you may have heard based on this sowing and reaping language that Paul will use. And it goes something like this. If you give money to the church or to the television evangelist or to whoever, then God will give back to you more even than you gave. Right? If you sow, if you give generously, then you are going to get back literally in financial form from what you've given as though God is concerned with balancing the books in such a way that, that generosity becomes a, simply a way of investing back into yourself. 
And Paul says, actually, that's the exact opposite point uh, that he's trying to make here. Because notice what he says. He says, those who sow to the flesh will reap corruption. Those who sow to the spirit will reap life. Remember the way that flesh and spirit work in Paul. What we talked about last week. Flesh represents the entirety of human life lived for self. Lived as though your desires, your hungers, your needs is the very center of your universe. And outside of Eden, this is the way that human beings live our lives. We live our lives for our own self-gratification, for the satisfaction of our own wants. Whether they be our material wants, whether they be our spiritual wants, our religious wants, our sexual wants. That everything orbits around the self. And Paul says that that self, that flesh, has been crucified with Christ. It's done and it's passing away. And there's this new world, this life of the Spirit that has dawned on us in Jesus, that is coming and will reach its fulfillment in His kingdom. And that world is, you taste it now by His Spirit, you taste it now in the church, and one day it will fill the entire earth. And so what Paul is saying is, are you spending your financial resources in that kingdom of flesh where everything bends back on itself and it's all about your security and your needs and your hunger? Or in the way that you spend and save and give, are you demonstrating your foundational existence in that world that's to come? The world of the Spirit, the world of Christ's kingdom. And so you see that if you're giving to God in the belief that He's going to give back to you, that's, that's just another way of working the flesh with a slightly more Jesus-y vibe to it. Feeling a little bit better about your investment in yourself. But Paul says, sow to the Spirit and you'll reap in the Spirit. What does that mean? That means that generosity is good for you. Right? I know that it's weird when a pastor starts talking about money. Uh, because we do need you to give. Right? The mission of the church this local church goes forward through the generosity of our members and our people, right? It doesn't go through the generosity of a few wealthy people. It doesn't go through the generosity of some donors that are off somewhere else. It goes forward through the sacrificial giving of ordinary members, faithfully giving. And so, yes, giving is necessary for the church. But what Paul is saying is that giving is necessary for you because left to yourself, You'll live your life the way that all human beings do, which is holding on to everything you have with a white-knuckled grip, believing there is not enough, you don't have enough, you're in competition with everyone around you for your very survival. But he says the gospel frees you to actually start to relinquish your grip on your stuff, to break the spell of greed on your heart, and to sow into this world to come, the world that is marked by the Spirit. And so give. Give as an act of resistance uh, in the midst of a materialistic and greedy world. Give for the goodness of your own heart. Give as a sign to the world around you uh, that there is more to this life than what can be counted and measured and bought. A merciful people, a forgiving people in a merciless world, a humble people in an arrogant world, a burden-bearing people, in an independent world, in a generous people, in a greedy world. 
Leslie Newbegin said that the greatest hermeneutic, the greatest interpretation or proclamation of the gospel is found in the life of a local church who believes it and who lives it out uh, in their body and in their life, in their relationships, in their love. William Lane was a New Testament uh, scholar, brilliant man who, uh, in, towards the end of his life, moved and became a member of a PCA church in Franklin, Tennessee. And he started serving there, and uh, when he would uh, start off the service, when he would do the call to worship uh, and open the service in prayer, uh, as we do each week, he had the same prayer every week. And you're like, man, brilliant New Testament scholar. You should be able to come up with a different prayer when you, when you are asked to lead prayer. But over and over again, his prayer was this, Lord Jesus, make yourself, show yourself to be beautiful and believable in the life of this church. And then through our lives, make yourself beautiful and believable to our neighbors. Let's pray that now for us. Lord Jesus, we do ask that you would help us to believe and to see your beauty. That more and more the truth of your gospel would uh, grip our minds and our hearts and that it would transform our lives to reflect something of the beauty of Jesus to our world. Lord, that we would be a presence, a signpost, a foretaste here in our city uh, that makes you believable and beautiful uh, for our neighbors. Lord, we know that none of this is in us, right? We're in and of ourselves, every bit as selfish and greedy and arrogant and prideful as anyone else. And it would take a miracle uh, for us to change. But Lord Jesus, you are, in the you are in the business of miracles. You are in the business of uh, restoring us in the spirit of gentleness. And so, Lord Jesus, we pray that you would remake us bit by bit in your image so that your beauty and truth and goodness would shine out from our lives and our church. Uh, to your glory in our place. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Christ Church in town, please visit our website at ChristChurchInTown.org.